Hi there. Today we're going to go through somatic symptom and related disorders. So there's going to be four in this episode today. The first will be somatic symptom disorder. The second will be illness anxiety disorder, also known as hypochondria. The third will be functional neurological symptom disorder, also known as conversion disorder. And the fourth will be factitious disorder. Starting off with somatic symptom disorder. And again, when I go through this, I'm really just using a lot of Merck manuals up to date. I'll pull some things from Smarty Pants just because, again, they get a lot of the information from those things as well. And then every once in a while, I see something that seems very important in Rosh Review. I'll pull that in as well. But the majority of this is for sure coming from Rick Manuals and, and um, up to date. So somatic symptom disorder, just generally, how is it described or defined? It's a chronic condition in which the patient has prominent physical symptoms involving at least one body system, but no physical cause found on the workup. And it's associated with significant distress or functional impairment. So something physical appears to be occurring symptom-wise. They're having a physical symptom that they're, they're feeling, but there seems to be no reason as to why this is happening that we can actually see on a physical exam. Risk factors, much more common in women, and usually it onsets or begins before 30 years of age. Looking at the diagnostic criteria, it's gonna be A, B, and C. So A, one or more vague physical symptoms, that's a must, that result in significant distress or significant disruption of daily life. B, at least one of the following, one would be thoughts, disproportionate and persistent thoughts, about the seriousness of one's problems, or two, emotions, persistently high level of anxiety about other symptoms, or three, behaviors such as excess tie and energy devoted to these symptoms. So that's B. And then C is going to be the state of being symptomatic is persistent. So greater than six months usually, although any one of the symptomatic symptoms may not be continuous, meaning that the symptom they're feeling or noticing may shift over time. So that's going to be the diagnostic criteria. Again, when I bring these up, I think it's important for me to kind of just mention it so you have heard it at least once, but I don't know if it's necessarily something that you're going to be tested on. You know, I don't think it's going to be what's the diagnostic criteria for this. I just do think the timeframes tend to tend to play a big role. Uh, But in these specific diagnostic criteria, I think having just one or more vague physical symptom is going to be the main thing. I mean, one or more, but of course, at least one. Looking into the treatment, it's going to be which one, pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy first? It's going to be psychotherapy. Again, so cognitive behavioral therapy. Management includes regularly scheduled appointments with one single provider for close-up follow-up or close follow-up and uh, developing a therapeutic alliance with the patient. So I I think that's really important to keep in mind because if they're jumping from provider to provider, you know, saying this person said this, this person said this and going all over the place, that's probably just going to feed this disorder even more, but rather just having regularly scheduled appointments, helping them keep their minds at ease, especially if we're finding nothing else wrong on a physical exam, that's going to be very important. So the main management of this is regularly scheduled appointments with a single provider for close follow-up and develop a therapeutic alliance with the patient. The pharmacotherapy that would be used or could be used might be an antidepressant, although this should be limited. And then SSRIs and SNRIs have shown to be have shown to work well and improve this compared to a placebo. So just some treatment options that are that are there. But the first thing you're going to want to start with is the psychotherapy. Okay, next we can go into illness anxiety disorder. So what is this? It's characterized by excessive concern or preoccupation about having or developing a serious undiagnosed general general medical disease. So you might hear people call themselves hypochondriacs. This is kind of what they're describing, illness anxiety disorder. So just always worried, totally concerned, just like I've got something going on, although there isn't anything going on. Age of onset, early adulthood, so 20 to 30 years old, and then 
comorbid disorders, 71% of these people also have generalized anxiety disorder and then depressive disorders as well. But 71% have GAD, which I think is very interesting and good to keep in mind that if these people are so worried, they probably have quite a bit of anxiety. So hopefully that helps. Diagnostic criteria. Again, this will be A, B, C, D, E, and F. A is going to be preoccupation with having or developing a serious condition. B is somatic symptoms are not present, or if they are present, they're very mild in intensity. C, high level of anxiety about health and a low threshold for becoming alarmed about one's health. D, either one of the following, excessive health-related behaviors or maladaptive avoidance of situations. E, preoccupation with illness or behaviors is present for at least six months, although the specific illness that is feared can change over time. So just like I said with somatic symptom disorder, that the physical symptom that the patient is experiencing can change over that time, which is typically at least six months. Same thing happens here. There's a preoccupation with an illness and that specific fear of whatever that illness might be can change over time. And then last one F is the illness preoccupation is not better explained by other mental disorders such as somatic symptom disorder, GAD, or another somatic type of delusional disorder. Again, looking at the somatic symptom disorder, if they aren't actually experiencing a physical symptom, then, then we are more so looking at hypochondria, uh, illness, anxiety disorder. Whereas if they're experiencing a true symptom, then we're thinking, okay, well, there's no reason for it that we can find on exam. And we've done up the, we've done the workup, which is making it seem like it's more of a somatic symptom disorder. Going into treatment, we're looking at supportive healthcare. So similar to somatic symptom disorder, the primary care clinician generally plays the role of managing patients, including regularly scheduled appointments with close follow-up and development of a therapeutic alliance. So pretty much the same thing I had said before uh, with somatic symptom disorder. And then in terms of the first, so I kind of have it split up first, second, and third line therapy. So first line therapy is actually going to be, again, cognitive behavioral therapy. Second line would be a different, a different type of psychotherapy. And then third line is going to then be antidepressants. So again, this could be an SSRI. And uh, yeah, I think that covers illness and anxiety disorder pretty well. I noticed on exams myself that if there wasn't a symptom, then you're really looking at illness, anxiety disorder. You know, if there's just a fear, if they're actually experiencing some kind of symptom, it's probably somatic symptom disorder. So hopefully that helps a little bit differentiate between those two. Moving on to functional neurological symptom disorder, also known as conversion disorder. So this is characterized by neurologic symptoms like weakness, abnormal movements, or non-epileptic seizures that are inconsistent with the neurologic disease, but cause distress and or impairment. So I have it in here that's formerly known as conversion disorder. I don't know if I had found that in up-to-date or Merck manuals, but you'll often see it's mentioned as conversion disorder, but these patients I have convert their psychological distress into neurological symptoms. So you're not seeing a reason for them to have these neurological symptoms. They're just kind of occurring. And then it's important to keep in mind that symptoms are not intentionally produced or feigned. So like they're not causing this to happen. It's not like they're coming in with something that they're trying to cause. They're not making themselves weak. They're not causing abnormal movements themselves. They're not doing this on purpose or, or intentionally, but it almost appears that way. It's two to three times more common in women, and it can occur at any age, but more common in adolescence and early adulthood. The type of symptoms or clinical manifestations you might see is paralysis, aphonia, mutism, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, gait abnormalities, involuntary movements, tics, weakness, and then sensory dysfunction as well. You could actually see blindness, anesthesia, paresthesia, visual changes, or deafness. Looking at the diagnostic criteria, so A through D, 
A is at least one symptom of neurologic dysfunction that cannot be explained clinically and not explained by another medical or psychiatric condition. Again, you can think about, can we rule out hypochondria or illness anxiety disorder? And then can we rule out somatic symptom disorder? B, clinical findings that demonstrate incompatibility between the symptom and recognized neurologic or general medical condition. So trying to look at, can we for sure see that there is not something physically in the brain or elsewhere in the body causing this kind of problem that we might be looking more towards conversion disorder. C, the symptom or deficit is not better explained by another medical or mental disorder. And D, the symptom or deficit causes significant distress, psychosocial impairment, or other important areas of functioning, or warrants medical evaluation. And then this is one where I'll, I'll often say that the time frame is very important with these, but this is one, I think, the only one I can think of really where the time frame really doesn't play a role. So it's really just marked by at least one symptom of the neurologic dysfunction causing that significant distress, social or psychosocial impairment or other important areas of functioning causing that kind of impairment. So you're not necessarily looking for a time frame here. It's more of the other factors that are coming into play. The first line treatment is actually going to be patient education about the illness. So letting them know that this is what you're seeing. It's not necessarily going on and saying, hey, this isn't happening because th this is happening. The next thing we'll go into factitious disorder, that where, that's where it kind of separates out a little bit. But the first thing you're going to do is patient education. And then in terms of psychotherapy, like I've said almost every time, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, the last one we'll go into quick is factitious disorder. This is intentional falsification or exaggeration of signs and symptoms of a medical or psychiatric illness for primary gain, but not for external reward. Primary gain meaning inner need to be seen as ill or injured and assume the role of a sick patient. So they're not doing it for the purposes of getting money or you know, something like that. There's not external award associated with it. It's the primary gain that want to be seen as the injured or ill patient, you know, the person who's sick. It's going to be most common in women. The diagnostic criteria is A through D. A is intentional or falsification or exaggeration of signs and symptoms of a medical or psychiatric illness for primary gain. B, induction of an injury or disease with intent to deceive. The deceptive behavior is evident even in the absence of obvious external reward as seen in malingering. That's kind of a whole separate thing we can go into later. Presentation, so C is presentation of the individual or another individual. This could be looking at it being a factitious disorder imposed on another. And then D is behavior is not explained by another psychiatric disorder like delusional disorder. And then last, the management, it's really nonspecific. It's, I think it's very hard to treat these people. The main thing is collect information from medical providers and family members to avoid unnecessary procedures, it may require confrontation in a non-threatening matter. When confronted, patients often just leave against medical advice and child or adult protective services if imposed on another. So this is one where you may have heard it also be described as uh, Munchausen or uh, Munchausen by proxy. So what they're referring to is saying that, well, Munchausen was just another name that was used for this before. But what that's saying is if it's by proxy or or imposed on another is saying that maybe a parent is bringing the child in, causing some kind of falsification of an illness in their own child because they want you know, they want to be seen as the parent with the sick child or something like that. I don't have any experience of that in the real world, but this is what I've come to understand. And then the most common caregiver population in which factitious disorder or Munchausen imposed on another is diagnosed is going to be biological mothers. So what I'm trying to say there is that biological mothers are the most likely or most often seen 
uh, caregiver of a child who's going to actually be causing or imposing this factitious disorder on them. I think that's kind of confusing to say, <laughs> hard to get at a little bit, but all I'm trying to get at there is that factitious disorder. This is when the person themselves is choosing to uh, falsify or exaggerate signs and symptoms. A factitious disorder imposed on another is when somebody is doing that to somebody else, like doing that to their child. And the most common population to see that is that in when you're imposing it on another will be biologic mothers. So hopefully that helps. I know that was kind of a lot, a little bit confusing there. I know when I looked up videos myself to go through these before while I was studying, it was hard. It's, it's difficult to try to listen through someone else trying to trying to talk through it, especially when you don't have visuals. But hopefully this is something that you can just listen to quick. But I do think that particularly with the somatic symptoms and those related disorders, I think it's important to maybe sit down, make up a graph, make up a chart and, and really just be able to identify all the differences and similarities. But anyway, hopefully that helps and see you next time.